0: The following message is entitled, The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 6. This message was given during the evening service on July 31, 2022 at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. For the sake of recording, we continue tonight with The Marks of Superjoy Suffering, Part 6, from 1 Peter Chapter One verse 6, which I will get to in the outline in a moment. But first, the introduction is the faithless father who was fathering faithfully, question mark. And who is the faithless father who has been fathering faithfully, supposedly? Why, Hollywood actor Clint Eastwood, who is 92 years old. He's fathered eight children from five different illicit relationships. Typical Hollywood adulterer, serial adulterer. Nothing new there. But, actor's son, Scott Eastwood, however, worships the ground his father walks on. There's no doubt Clint Eastwood is Scott Eastwood's father, because if you put a photograph of Clint Eastwood at age 36 next to a current photograph of Scott Eastwood, who's 36, they look like twins. In a 2016 GQ article, Scott Eastwood recalled how at age 16 he had left his 14 year old sister at a party and went home. When Daddy Clint found out about it, he punched Scott Eastwood in the nose and said, quote, You don't ever leave your sister at a party. Scott said his dad taught him how to hunt, how to fish, taught him that if you do wrong, you're going to be punished. Scott was humbled by this. He says his father was always there for him, taught him how to fish, shoot, as I said, drummed into him the virtues of integrity, honesty, hard work, and honor. He learned from Clint that your word was your bond. Excuse me, I just kind of choked on that last sentence there. Your word was your bond? Scott? learned all this from a dad who is and was a serial adulterer what a hypocrite Clint Eastwood is Scott's mother was a stewardess Clint committed adultery with Clint Eastwood's philosophy for the last 50 years was and has been any female port in a storm Yet son Scott continues to bow to his father's knowledge with great respect. Mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. Well, aren't we to unconditionally love our parents? Yes, but respect him for what he is not? As Paul Harvey would have said years ago, what's the rest of the story? Well, Clint, being such a great father... The, father, the faithless father, who was fathering faithfully, supposedly. He did not grant legal fatherhood to his son, Scott, as an Eastwood, at birth. On Scott's birth certificate, it says, Father declined. Nice, Clint. Real nice. You legally and formally divested yourself legally out as the father of Scott, And yet he worships his daddy. Clint was honorable? Honest? Faithful? Hardly. The man was a moral fiend and still is who taught his son that his word was his bond. But it just didn't quite apply to his own marriage vows. Truly a faithless father who claimed to be fathering faithfully. You gotta wonder if Scott Eastwood is delusional. I feel bad for him. Maybe that's the best he's got in Hollywood. I think you'd be hard-pressed to get a worse father than Clint Eastwood. Yet, judging by behavior and experience, in my so many years in the pastorate, I have seen more than a few professed believers Kind of under the same assumption that Scott is when it comes to God in fact a lot like Scott Eastwood adoring a faithless heavenly father claiming he fathers his children faithfully and why do some Christians believe God is like Clint Eastwood unfaithful and unreliable yet still expecting our worship because God lets bad stuff happen to his children and even expects us to joyfully accept it. My experience is most Christians in the midst of suffering think that is just downright terrible and that God is a Clint God who is a sadist enjoying causing us suffering. Anyone can get that mindset even Jeremiah one of the greats in the Old Testament, Jeremiah 15. Basically, Jeremiah reached a point in his destitute suffering life where he had had enough with God. He's torn betwixt the two. Jeremiah 15, verse 15, he's praying to God. You who know, O Lord, remember me. Take notice of me. Why would a believer ever have to pray that? Because he was thinking God had forgotten him and didn't notice him. This is the grounds for considering God faithless, by the way. You can write it in the introduction. Believers, even growing ones like Jeremiah can reach this point where they think that God has forgotten them and doesn't notice them. Now you see that he is considering God like Clint Eastwood. Scott said, oh, my father was honorable and great, a faithless father that I must honor and I've learned so much from. And Jeremiah with God is praying to God and says, you who know, that's omniscience, remember me? This is a contradictory prayer. This is a prayer we should not pray. You don't say to God, you know everything. Now remember me. Oh, so then he doesn't know enough to remember you. Oh, I forgot to put my name on your birth certificate, Jeremiah. Father unknown. Then he nails God again. Take notice of me. Does God always notice us? I mean, what we learn in the New Testament is he sees a bird fall to the ground and he knows how many hairs of your head are numbered. His real beef with God is the second part of verse 15. He wants his persecutors gone. Now, He's swinging unstable. Verse 16, he goes back to the word. Your words were found and I ate them, and your words became for me a joy and the delight of my heart. Good for you. You found the secret, didn't you, Jeremiah? You found that God's word is faithful and reliable because a faithful God writes a faithful word. He should have just stayed in verse 16 because he starts to crash. How does he start to crash? He starts looking at the people that are attacking him. Verse 17, I did not sit in a circle of merrymakers, nor did I exult. Because of your hand upon me, I sat alone. You can see how when you start whining about bad people in your life, what happens to your joy? Gone. Now look at verse 17. You filled me with anger. Oh, so God's to blame for his anger now, huh? I'm angry, and this is God's fault. Clint. This is so much like Scott Eastwood, it's scary. Oh, my father was a great father, verse 16. And his word was his bond, and he taught me honor and truth. Yes, I know he didn't put my name, his name on my birth certificate and disowned me. You filled me with indignation. You can see the scowl at the end of verse 17 a lot of angry bitter Christians God is a sadist he's done this to me look at verse 18 this is as low as it will get in the book of Jeremiah why has my pain been perpetual why must I permanently have to suffer And my wound incurable refusing to be healed who's who's the great healer God you're not healing me you're not taking my pain away and why does he think this of God Jeremiah opens a window to what is in a lot of professed believers minds that never get revealed and it explodes with the next statement Will you, God, indeed be to me like a deceptive stream with water that is unfaithful? (laughs) God, you're, you're like, you led me into the desert, told me there was water over the hill, and when I got there, there was none. You are a deceiver, who leads me to water that isn't there would not it be interesting to know how God responds to such a believer well we have it right here in verse 19 therefore thus says the Lord if you return then I will restore you know what God's confronting in Jeremiah right there doesn't talk about the deceptive stream or all the slander Jeremiah's just done to him Are you there, faithful God? Do you see me? Do you take notice? Will you remember me? Will you vanquish my enemies? Why is pain forever? Does he deal with any of that? Uh Uh-uh. God, the great, eternal, divine, perfect counselor, gets to the core of the issue. If you return, what do we call returning to God? Repentance then I will restore you there is no write it down in the introduction there is no restoration without repentance and having the attitude of verses 15 17 and 18 are not repentance before me you will stand that's talking about firmness spiritual stability and if you extract the precious from the worthless the worthless is his prayers arbitrarily in verses 15 and his fixating on his enemies in verse 17. Now you say, give him a break. He's having a harder time than any of us. Wait a minute. That's a cop-out. Okay? Give Jeremiah a break because he's got it harder than any of us. Don't the rules apply to all of us? Whether it's me stubbing my toe and shaking my fist at God, or sitting in an Afghan prison ready to be executed for my faith, the solution is always the same. Our only hope is the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 19. When he says, Extract the precious from the worthless, he's saying, Return to true prayer, true knowledge, trust, repentance. God is faithful even in the worst of times. And only then can he go back to speaking for God. And then he tells them that he needs endurance. They, for their part, may turn to you. It's a play on words in the Hebrew. But as for you, you must not turn to them. They may turn, you must not turn. God's not telling him what's going to happen. He's not telling him how long the pain must last. He's saying they may, may or may not, Well, God doesn't know because he's an idiot. God is just not in the business of telling us when our suffering is going to end. This is a powerful insight into God and how he deals with a true believer who's backslidden. And at this point, he's backslidden. They, for their part, may turn to you. They may lift up to you, but as for you, you must not be dragged down to them. That's literally how it reads. They may come up. In the Hebrew, don't you go down. Don't you get in the gutter with unbelievers. Don't you act like them. They may turn to you. Don't you dare get down and act like them. So everything was fine after that. I mean, basically, Jeremiah repented, right? And uh, God sent him on a nice cruise vacation, gave him a break, took all his pain and trouble away. Uh, uh, no, (laughs) no, chapter 16, the word of the Lord also came to me saying, you shall not take a wife for yourself crying out loud I can barely take the suffering of the Merry Makers back in verse 17 now you're telling me I'm going to be single the rest of my life how is this not Clint God Because God has told his children, from Genesis to Revelation, you are going to suffer. And he doesn't tell us why we're going through what we are. We're to accept it. Either we consider him faithful, or he's an honorably talking, Clint Eastwood maniac. Choose this day whom you'll serve. So we go to 1 Peter chapter 1, and nothing changes. In verse 6 of 1 Peter chapter 1, we are told, if necessary, you will be suffering for a little while. If necessary, no insight there, no time deadline mentioned How sad that Scott Eastwood respects his dad as a moral monster. Yet believers cannot trust and respect their Savior who never has asked of them anything that he himself when on earth was not willing to endure. Your Savior and mine isn't sitting on an ivory tower. He was human, tempted like us, suffered and died on our behalf. God is not like Clint Eastwood says one thing and means another. God is not like our own fathers who all fail us. Every human father fails. He is perfectly faithful, yet Jeremiah accused him of being faithless. It is better to reject the God of the Bible when privately thinking he's unfaithful than to pretend to believe in a faithful God that you think is faithless. Do you understand? That's Laodicean. God says to the Laodicean, I would better that you were hot, on fire for God, or cold, a total unbeliever, than mix the two together. It is obnoxious to God to hear his Christians singing of a faithful Lord, Great is thy faithfulness, while they scowl against Clint God in their hearts. He is our God who is worthy of respect and trust. The suffering does not remove his faithfulness. He simply controls it. I don't understand why we can't completely trust Jesus for our lives, even in the darkest hours when he died for us. What more does he have to do to convince us of his love and faithfulness? I dare say at 92 years old, Clint Eastwood isn't dying for his son he was dying to get his own name off the birth certificate. Why is God not enough to direct our steps and lives? Why must believers step in and take the reins for themselves? I'll tell you why. Because God is like Clint Eastwood to most believers. Mark, number one, in your note sheet says Christian suffering is temporary but we don't know what temporary means even though now for a little while if necessary it is necessary why why Lord is it necessary I gave you four reasons last Sunday why we should suffer. It's not, it's not mindless suffering. God isn't throwing suffering darts at your life and they just randomly smack into you. There is plan and purpose to the suffering of God in our lives. He's just not cueing into us why all of the suffering in our lives is tailor-made for each one of us. He doesn't have to tell us he's Lord we're slave. He says submit and I don't have to tell you why. That's what a slave is folks. We're not on equal terms and standing with the Lord of this universe. He dictates what happens to our lives. We don't have a right to question it. And he paid for his faithfulness by dying. He went all the way to the cross for us. How dare Jeremiah or anyone call him a deceptive stream in the desert? How dare he say that? It's the mercy of God that he didn't strike him dead right there. Is it not? How patient God is with our wicked hearts. I gave you four reasons why Christians must suffer in this life. And one of them is not. I did not give you this as a fifth reason last Sunday night. So that God unfaithfully can get his kicks out of torturing us. That That wasn't one of the four last Sunday night. Nor was one of the reasons not. Why we are to suffer, so good because God can't keep his vows to protect us. That wasn't one of the reasons, because he's too impotent. Nor was one of the reasons we must suffer because God's too weak to direct our steps. He created this universe, he has knowledge, command, and control far greater than we could ever imagine. Only a fool doesn't submit. To such loving perfect powerful wise oversight in our lives we just are idolatrous we don't want what he is dishing out to us no thank you Clint God and so not only is Peter telling us right up front in verse 6 you have to greatly rejoice mega rejoice Mega upliftment in your heart, even when you're suffering seemingly permanently, but when he says for a little while and doesn 't tell us how long we need endurance, that phrase for a little while in verse six has driven me to understand that we need endurance it 's in your note sheet, grasping spiritual endurance under mark number one that 's what we 're doing, and it 's in First Corinthians ten. This is the defining passage if you want to understand. Christian endurance. It's not the only passage, but you have to go. It is the only road you must absolutely go through to understand endurance. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen. Paul is confronting the Corinthians who are carnal and they're behaving like Old Testament Israel. They're idolaters in verse 7. They're whiners and complainers in verse 10. And that brings about the potential for God's mercy, the hourglass of mercy, as we're learning in our First Timothy series, to be drained dry. Many of them died and were destroyed in verse 10. Back in the Old Testament, this is a serious, serious issue. Our sin is serious. You know, that was the point I was trying to make this morning. I don't know if you were here and you missed it or not, but in uh, Second Timothy 2, The reason we don't talk about sin and we get upset over sermons on sin is because we don't think it's that serious. And I want to go back there. Yeah, I do, actually. Because I want you to see something that I didn't actually mention this morning. 2 Timothy 2. The serious nature of our sin is not understood by most of us. And the very point I was trying to make in the sermon this morning, I forgot to make. 2 Timothy 2 verse 25, Paul is telling Timothy, pastor of the Ephesian church, that those who were in opposition in the church, he's talking to believers, wicked believers who were in opposition in the Ephesian church. They were attacking him. You can see it all the way back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 where they were being attacked, attacking Timothy and Timothy wanted to quit. So he says, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition so that God may grant them repentance. See? Sounds a lot like Jeremiah 15, doesn't it? They may come up to you. They may return to you. Here, God may grant them repentance. He is not telling us what unbelievers are going to get saved that we pray for. He's not telling us whether backslidden and family are going to get right with God. He is not telling us. It says, if perhaps God may. Exactly what God said to Jeremiah, who was dealing with unbelievers. And now Timothy's dealing with wicked believers. Now, here's the point I missed this morning that is very, very important. If they don't repent in verse 25, they will end up snared by demonic forces in verse 26. How serious is unrepentant sin in a believer's life? We're going to have a membership meeting right now. Raise your hand if you would like Satan and demonic forces to ensnare you and trap you. Directly assault you, raise your hand. Well, nobody wants that. If we don't repent, we're going to get it. Notice, if you don't repent, in verse 25 it leads to the knowledge of the truth. But if we do repent, we'll come to our senses and escape from the snare of the devil. Snare is an animal trap. He can trap us when we give ourselves over to unrepentant sin. There are consequences Having been held captive by him to do his will. Look at that. A professed believer can be held captive by Satan and start doing his will. There are Christians that are in Satan's camp. They're under demonic influence and they don't even know it. Why? Sin's not that bad. Why do we have to be so negative? Mm. So go back to 1 Corinthians 10. How bad sin How bad is sin in a believer's life? We'll look at again verse 10 of 1 Corinthians 10. How bad is it? (laughs) We're not doing all those terrible things they did back in Israel's day, you know, all the uh, idolatry and dancing and the sexuality going on there back in Moses' day. I'm not doing any of that, you know, I'm not like that. We'll look at verse 10. Do we grumble? Verse 10 and were destroyed how serious is our sin let's not talk about it let's hide it let's maintain in the fellowship of believers an exterior that lifts up to god great is your faithfulness because our goal is simply predominantly to fool other christians While in our hearts, we rip, clint God to pieces. And we take the reins of our own life. One of the most frightening things I can ever imagine as a professed believer is for God to give us over to Satan. You say, I don't think God does that. Maybe you should read 1 Corinthians 5 again sometime where the church disciplined believer by God because the Corinthians were so arrogant and weren't willing to confront a guy who's committing incest as a believer in the Corinthian church. Oh, who would he be? Who are we to be? The bygones being bygones. So he's committing incest. Who are we to say? Paul went ballistic over that. What did he say? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 5, I'm giving this man over to Satan. For the destruction of the flesh. That's what rebellion is. We have to be very careful. Never. In our hearts, not in the exterior of how we know how to play the game. But in our hearts, we had better not be praying to Clint God. So in verse 13... After telling them that they're falling, basically, in verse 12, he gives them the solution. No trial, not temptation. We've already seen that. perasmas in this context, is a test. Has overtaken you, but such is common to man. It's common. anthropinos. Even the unsaved individuals are tried. Who are we? To testify we have no capability in Jesus Christ to endure trials, and that we're no better than the unbelievers. No trial is overtaking you, but such as is common to man. And it will overtake you to seize you like an epileptic seizure. I was in the middle of playing a a sport in high school, and uh, it was a kind of a combination sport that was popular back in... Way back in ancient history in the 1970s, there was a combination of soccer and basketball, and I was pretty good at it, I was a goalie. And I remember playing this, and one of my teammates reared up in the middle of sprinting towards the ball, statued up like this, and he fell over and was seizing, and thank God for a smart gym teacher. Mr. Warzniak, I didn't like him because he made me go back into swim class because I couldn't swim, but I went into counseling for that, so don't worry. But anyways, Warzniak goes running over to him and he's fishing in his pocket desperately, gets a pen out and crams it behind his tongue so he doesn't swallow it and choke to death on his own tongue. That's a seizure. And that's that word right there, overtaken in verse 13. You I mean God's going to allow something on any given day to slam us? Yes, you know what this is like. Things were going fine till you got the phone call. Or whatever. Slammed. Number four in your note sheet. What Jeremiah failed to realize, what the Corinthians forgot, and what Peter is trying to tell us in 1 Peter 1 6 is God is faithful, loyal. He does notice. He does see. He does control. If the suffering's there, he's got a better idea than you and I why it should be there. Under number four, write it down. This really is the foundation of this whole discussion on joy when suffering. This really is the foundation. This is the root issue as I finished off the sermon last Sunday night on this. And for a second sermon, I'm getting to this as well. This really is the foundation of this whole discussion on joy when suffering and enduring when suffering. You can't have joy, you can't have endurance if you think God is faithless. He stuck you at a bus stop and he walked away and now you're getting mugged. What blasphemy. Faithful means loyal, loyal in the Greek. He is, state of being. And it's intensive. Paul wants these wicked Corinthians to realize that this is very powerful. Faithful now is God. How long are you supposed to put up with the trial? But now, now for a little while, even though now, did you get that back in 1 Peter 1.6? 1, now for a little while now right here it reads like this faithful now is God how long must I put up for my trials now how faithful is God now suffering now faithful now suffering now faithful now God's now of faithfulness tracks right on top of now you suffer Faithful now. Now you suffer. Faithful now. It's intensive in the Greek. Faithful now is God. Let's take a little stroll through faithfulness. Ryan brought up one of the verses I'll look at, but this is going to be a speed reading dynamic right now. Deuteronomy 7. Let's remind our wicked little slave rebel hearts. That how dare we grumble and complain and in our hearts call God clint. Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. For you were the fewest of all people. Deuteronomy 7, verse 8. But because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you up by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Verse 9. Now therefore, that the Lord your God, know therefore that the Lord your God, he is God, the what? If he saved you and I out of the slime pit of hell, Why would we ever think he's abandoning us in suffering? Who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. He is faithful to his children. Chapter 32. Deuteronomy 32, verse 3. The song of Moses he sings this for I proclaim the name of the Lord ascribe greatness to our God the rock Randy talked about that this morning he is our foundation stable foundation his work is perfect for all his ways are just a God of faithfulness without injustice so when in the midst of your unique suffering you scowl and say This isn't fair. That means God is unjust. And if he's unjust, he's faithless. You are a disloyal God when I think that my suffering is unfair. Because faithfulness and without injustice at the end of verse 4 go together. And why is he faithful and always just? Last part of verse 4. Righteous and upright is he. There are things that God cannot do. He cannot sin. He's infinite in his perfection, but he cannot be unfaithful to you. That is impossible because he is perfectly righteous and upright. To be unfaithful, God would have to sin. Do you want to attribute sin to God? Psalm 89 I call this psalm the faithful psalm. You want to really study the reliability of God in your life? Park a few weeks on Psalm 89. Oh my goodness, what a psalm this is. Verse 1, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations. I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. For I have said loving kindness will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. He links love with faithfulness. If God has abandoned us in our suffering, God ceases to love me. That is such great sin. Cynical Christians, scowling under their breath, see God as Clint, fake it among the believers. Great is thy faithfulness. Yeah. Yeah right sure what evil verse 5 the heavens will praise your wonders o lord your faithfulness also in the assembly of the holy ones for who in the skies is comparable to you lord who among the sons of the mighty is like the lord a god greatly feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all those who are around him verse 8 O Lord, God of hosts, who is like you, almighty God, here it is again, your faithfulness also surrounds you. When did his faithfulness end? Just because there's pain in your life and mine. Where did we get off blaspheming God like that? So we're not going to read the Bible anymore, and we're not going to pray? Because God, you did me wrong. No. No. He did not do us wrong because verse 9 says he still rules. You rule the swelling of the sea when waves rise. You still them. You yourself crushed Rahab like one who was slain. (coughs) You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. Suffering doesn't mean that God is deceptive, that God doesn't know what he's doing, that he's forgotten and that he's walked away. It means he wants that in our lives. 1 Corinthians 1 that Ryan mentioned at the end of the sermon last Sunday night. So let's see what he was talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 9. It's interesting that faithfulness and endurance is mentioned so much to the Corinthians in these two epistles because Paul realizes that an unfaithful believer always turns the table and accuses God of the very thing that they are. Isn't that hypocrisy? The Corinthians were unbelievably unfaithful and accused God of being unfaithful. Clint, God. Clint Eastwood, always tell the truth. Be honorable. Keep your word. Sure, Clint, sure. Verse 9, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with the Son, Jesus Christ. Guess what dies when in our hearts we reject his faithfulness. We stop fellowshipping with the Lord. Never fails when we get fed up with the pain and the suffering What dies? Prayer and Bible time and church fellowship. Time to isolate. Time to not read and pray and repent. Make an appointment with Satan to do his will. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul nails them a second time. In fact, they never learned the lesson from 1 Corinthians. They upped the slander of Paul, so 2 Corinthians is basically Paul's defense of his apostolic authority in the face of Horrific attack against him, slanderous attacks from these Corinthian believers. Second Corinthians chapter one, look at verse seventeen. Therefore, I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? They accused him of vacillating to make light. They accused him of being unstable. That's what that word "alafria" means in verse seventeen of Second Corinthians one. They accused him of vacillating. You're, you're unstable. Paul's unstable. The best way to destroy the authority of a human leader is to slander him. To slander him. So what does Paul do in verse 18? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. What is a faithful God doing? Is his word yes and no at the same time? What would that mean? If you came up to me and you said, John, do you love me? And I said yes and no. That is unstable. They were accusing the apostle of that. Yes and no. Yes and no. God is faithful. Uh, he's, he, no, no, he's not. I'm suffering. Okay, okay. but he saved you. Yes, he saved me. But he's not helping you in your suffering. No, he's not helping me. Yes and no. Save me. Abandon. Save. Abandon. Save. Abandon. That's my God. Mm. Wow. Wow. Two more and we'll leave. John 13, go backwards again. John 13. John 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. Right underneath that in your Bible, that is faithfulness. Do you love Jesus to the end? Do you always love Jesus or do you whine and cry about your life? I would dare say we're not faithful to the end. And until we're willing to be consistently faithful to the end, why do we attack a God by saying he is like us? The Christians that have had it with God and suffering are hypocrites. They are unfaithful to a faithful God. When we gripe and complain, we act like we think he is doing to us. How terrible. In the midst of suffering, our focus should be this. I am the unfaithful one. I am the one that doesn't trust you. I am the one that slanders you. You are always faithful to me, even if you slay me. Yet I will trust in you. Job chapter 2. In conclusion. Job chapter 2. Look what Job said to his wicked wife, who basically had the idea that since you're suffering, you should curse God and die Look at Job 2, verse 10. He said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Yeah, yeah, that's that's actually the kind of Christianity I would like. Thank you very much. That's what I signed up for when I got converted. I want good from you, but not adversity. That's why Job said, Even if he murders me, I will trust in him. That is, is a godly believer trusting in a faithful God. But we, fear, depression, anxiety, hopelessness, they all speak to the fact that we've lost faith in our God. He is Lord Christ, but he is not faithful to me. Next Sunday night, we will see the, out, the outbreak, the conclusion to God is faithful. In 1 Corinthians 10, Paul slams it home. If God is faithful to you in the midst of your suffering and trials, then you need to understand something that is an axiom and a law. And we'll look at it next Sunday night. If God is faithful, he will never, ever allow you to be tried beyond what you're able. Which means, if I am unable to handle a trial, whose fault is it? God's or mine, ours. We are like Job's wife, curse God and die. Something we don't learn very well, Lord, is that should we accept good and not adversity? Job was not a superman. He continued to deteriorate as the book goes on. And we know from your word, Lord, that he became shipwrecked by your silence. It wasn't so much the afflictions of Satan that took him down as you weren't answering him. And he needed an answer desperately. And how interesting, when you did speak to Job, you pulled the same consistent sovereign Behavior that you did with Jeremiah you don't give him a why you confront his sin and call him to repent it simply is not part of your sovereign majesty to have to continuously explain your actions to menial slaves like us you tell us go we go you tell us stay we stay That's what you tell us to do, and we can only do that if we know you are never bad, all-knowing, infinitely loving, omnipotent and powerful infinitely to control our lives, and you are not in any way an ambiguous, weak-minded, indolent, stupid God who doesn't know what he's doing and likes to torture us. Wake us up, Lord. Endurance means we remain under. Ultimately, we remain under you as we remain under the suffering. Trusting in your perfect timing, you will enable us to move forward. In Jesus' name, amen.